0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for
1: podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm so happy to be talking today to Morgan Jerkins. She's the New York Times bestselling author of This Will Be My Undoing. She's a senior editor at Medium Zora Magazine. Her work has been featured in the New Yorker Vogue, the New York Times, and many other outlets. She lives in New York, and her latest book is called Wandering in Strange Lands. Welcome, Morgan. Hi, how are you? I'm okay, how are you? Good, Good, hanging in there, thanks for having me. Oh, what a pleasure. Um, So Morgan, this book is such a great mix of your personal story and your family's personal story um, with more reported stuff. Right. Tell me about that balance. Okay.
2: Um, It was hard because in the beginning, I did not plan on, um, I didn't plan on putting my personal story in it at all. Um, I thought I was just gonna be going into these communities and finding their distinctions, but also unifying forces, like land displacement, state violence, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the first couple of drafts obviously didn't come together. My editors were like, you have to put yourself in it. Um, and I didn't want to, because my first book, This Will Be My doing," was so personal. Right. So even though I didn't intend to hide, I was hiding, because I wasn't really writing about myself, and I wasn't showing that I had a stake in this, as well as a potential reader had a stake in it. And so once I finally had like this kind of Jesus moment with both my agent editors, then I was going, then I actually went backwards in a sense to start to interview family members. And then magically somehow when I looked through all the transcriptions from the interviewees that I talked to throughout my journey across the country, they seemed to be in dialogue with each other. So it ended up working out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell me a little bit about how you planned where to go on your trip um uh, the, like a reverse great migration yeah so yeah oh
2: okay <laughs> I, so for me like the reason like i knew where to go uh first with like the low country uh south carolina georgia because of food and mm-hmm. i talk about this in my first chapter like i know i can get soul food in los angeles i can get soul food in mississippi i can get soul food anywhere so that was one of the most significant parts of my life as an African American. Mm-hmm. And I started to just look for certain in- things that intrigued me about a Sunday dinner or tradition. And one of the traditions was, um, you know, eating collard greens for money and black eyed peas for good luck on New Year's Day. And I realized that actually originated from the Low Country. And when I did more research on the Low Country, I realized that. Um, the Gullah Geechee people there, which is a sub-ethnic group of African-Americans, um, they are the group that has had the highest retention rates of West African tradition. So I said, OK, mm-hmm. I may not be able to go to the particular country in West Africa where my family originated, but I can start here. Right. Um, I knew that I had to go to Louisiana because my father's family is Creole, so I had to go there. And then with regards to... Native American identity, or lack thereof, a mystery mm-hmm. of many different Black families. I knew I wanted to go to Oklahoma because that's where a lot of Native American families that Black people say that they have ties with, they were based in the South, and they were forced to move west of Mississippi into Indian Territory under Oklahoma because of the Trail of Tears, because Andrew Jackson and Manifest Destiny and all that. And then I ended up in California because geographically, last, that's the last place to go. And yeah. initially, I Want to go there because so i'm like why do i need to go to california and all my all the people i spoke to some scholars were like you can't just go to the south and the midwest and not go west you have to do mm. a disservice to your project if you just left it without that region so that's how i ended up there
1: and also your uncles produced brandy's first album just had I to get, mention it
2: second <laughs> album yeah her never second okay. album yeah, it was like, when I tell people that, they're like, that's your uncle? I didn't know that. I'm like, I thought everyone knew that because his last name is my last name. That last name's not
1: common. But people <laughs> did not know. We st- I have to give you I have to give you credit there. Um, t- let's tell me more about the Gologichi people and how you made connections there, how you found the people who would guide you and, and show you around.
2: Right. So every time I went to
1: a different region, I
2: told myself, you can't just go there. It's probably best if you do some preliminary research on the cultures in that particular region. So I spent a lot of time at the Schaumburg, which is a part of the New York Public Library System, and it's based in Harlem. And then I would make contact with people. And the way that I made contact was like, looking up documentaries, finding the people's names Mm. that were in the documentaries, finding people that made op-eds locally about the culture, and then reach out to them. I told them my name, I gave my my professional website, I told them my publisher, and to show that the book deal actually did exist, um, because these are vulnerable communities. And um, one of the women that I spoke to, her name was Tiffany Young, she's a non-institutional historian, and she was my liaison. And each time I was getting in touch with someone in different places, and they were like, okay, um I'll tell you who to speak to and help you through that because, as I mentioned earlier, these communities are vulnerable. people have gone into the communities before, and they create a scholarship off of what they found um mm-hmm. without giving proper acknowledgement so it definitely was a thing i had to I had to go in haphazardly right um, with these people, and that's how I found it. I spoke to them before I even went, so they had to familiarity with me and what I was gonna do
1: and i, I there are things I just you know, I've, I, I had heard about the Goluguchi people, I know that um, they were rice farmers, mm-hmm. both in Africa and then, yeah. but their erasure now is shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk about in particular um, Hilton Head Island, which I, I've always heard is a lovely place to vacation. Yeah. It's
2: beautiful. I mentioned mentioned in my book that that drive from Savannah, Georgia, where I was staying across, you know, the interstate into Hilton Head was one of the most beautiful drives I've ever gone on in my life. And I don't even like driving like that. (laughs) Um, But when you go there, The word plantation is ubiquitous. Right. Anything from the 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 stores at the strip malls to the gated communities where the descendants of the formerly enslaved, the gully people that live there, they're not living there. They hardly have access to it. Right. So it was very perverse, as I mentioned. There, like this line, this blurred line between leisure and slavery, basically, or the vestiges of slavery. Um. And that's what I wanted to draw attention to. And I was so thankful that the New York Times chose that particular excerpt to work with because it is an issue. And it's not just happened Hilton Head, but all along the Low country because it, it, it's it's such a beautiful region of the country. Right. But I want people to consider what are the consequences of making that place so beautiful and modernized and marketable for outside tourists. As that oftentimes the marginalized people there, which in this case are the Gullah Geechee people, get pushed towards the margins and oftentimes inevitably displaced.
1: Right, and and I mean, you talk about it in the book your first trip to an actual plantation, and that must—I mean—I can't even imagine.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've never been on a plantation tour before, and I never really had an interest in it. I think I just felt in my heart that like plantation tours are for white people; it's not for. Mm-hmm. Me to go there and to try to, you know, anesthetize the stories because nobody goes on a leisure tour of any grand estate, even if it is a plantation, to hear about the brutality. They they, they usually they don't. They want to hear about everything else. Um. So when I went there, I went with Tiffany, who, who, as I mentioned earlier, is a non-institutional historian, and she was telling me that she's been trying to get a historical marker there for the for those. Who toiled at this plantation, including some of her, her ancestors, and it's been uh, it's been an uphill battle to do that. But it just goes to show, like if you like when you went to the Rice plantation, like the energy was just so thick and was so palpable. Um, not to mention it was hot. And I remember like she took me out towards the water, and she was like saying to me, like, "Do you see that crocodile over there?" And I said, "Where?" She's like, "Where?" It's like, where? Where, where is it?" And I'm mm. like, "She's like, right there." And it took it took a couple <laughs> minutes, and I'm like, "Oh, there it is, man." If I would have had to be out here, I would be die, I would have died. And she said, "Well, many people did die." Yeah. So imagine, like, like as you said earlier, um, a lot of these enslaved Africans they were brought over to these rice plantations because they knew how to cultivate rice already because of where they originated from in West Africa. And so, when they come here to build the levees and the dikes, and to you know have that rice, you know they're put they're in the water, and they can lose their life because of what is there, or lose their life because of the brutality of slave masters. So, every time I look at a pack of rice now, especially if it says like mm-hmm. Carolina, Carolina King or something like that, I'm reminded of the those plantations that I visited.
1: And and you talk a lot about um the fear of water and and not swimming and and how that is perhaps connected to that in terms of generational trauma even that that mm-hmm. passes along
2: right right it's intergenerational trauma and you know water is such a complex relate- uh, topic for african americans because we all have to make fun of the fact that you know we don't swim because of our hair or, we, or we're going to drown but beneath that that humor that we often laugh to keep from crying it's like there's really some deep stuff there i mean think about the water what it constitutes with regards to slavery um what it with regards to just freedom you know mm-hmm. many few many enslaved few is i'm not gonna say many but enslaved africans some enslaved africans crossed the water in order to get to freedom during slavery so not only can the water constitute you know freedom it can constitute death it can constitute humor it can constitute you know sadness it just it runs the gamut because that's that you know that's pretty much what encapsulates african american experiences
1: yeah um and then tell me tell me about your this was your mother's side of of your mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. tell me how they reacted uh upon hearing your about your reporting
2: oh i mean they just wanted to talk and i was really <laughs> thankful that you know we got to have that time together. I think writing this book has actually brought uh, Meets Closer to both, our family on both sides. But, you know, the ch- chapter where I talk about why my mother's side of the family, my maternal grandfather's side left the South My mother never heard that story before. Mm -hmm. And my mother's in her 50s, so when she heard it, that was her first time hearing it too. And I just think about the fact that like, even the way he started, was like, I guess I could talk about it now. I almost felt like there was was a fear to talk about it because of what could happen. And what I wanted to demonstrate with that story is like, for some African-American families who were part of the Great Migration, it was just a simple accident. It was a simple, Walk down the road, certain road. It was, it was a simple drive. It was a simple, you know, turn of phrase, or your your voice got too loud that can change the trajectory of your family's story forever. You know, just in a split second.
1: Tell me, tell me, exa- tell, for for our listeners, um, will you tell us exactly what happened?
2: Um, so basically, what happened was um, my maternal great grandfather um hit a white man and he, in a car he, in a car he hit a white man he was driving he hit a white man we, i had no idea if the white man died or if he lived but it didn't matter right because he knew that he had to leave um mm. at the time that he was alive um, georgia was second to mississippi in terms of uh h- lynchings and as a child growing up he heard people being lynched like actually heard them Ugh. um so he knew that he, he had to go so right. what happened was um the white man that he actually worked for um he actually put him in the back of his trunk and drove him as far as he could to the water to escape and it wasn't until another black man's body was found floating in that water wh- that he decided it was okay for him to come back. I guess they were out for, the people were out for revenge or whoever they could find. So I didn't know that story, my mother didn't know that story and I'm sure why would they anyone tell that story? Because right. maybe they were afraid that even in spite of the distance that like they would, you know, it would be retribution. And granted, my, my great grandfather did end up coming back and his and his the man he worked for out in the cotton field actually defended him with a Winchester rifle and said, you know, if anyone takes the first step, you know, I'm going to shoot him. But even after my, you know, my my great grandfather had a family. He stayed there for a couple more years, but he was always afraid that something was
1: going to happen. And that's when they made the move to Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then you get to your dad's side of the family. Um, and and you, don't, you didn't have um, a really rich relationship with your father at the time. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that, about digging into his past and your past and um, learning more.
2: Yeah, my dad has been like an enigma to me. Like my dad is very much like, um, you know, I lived with my mother. So I didn't really know much about my dad's side of the family like that. And my dad, he would always say a couple things here and there about living in North Carolina because that's where he was born and raised. But But then sometimes he would say something even deeper than that, but then wouldn't go into it. So it always felt like an enigma to me of some sort. And it wasn't until about four or five years ago that I even knew my father was Creole. I had no idea that mm. he never brought it up. And, you know, I, me growing up in New Jersey, I didn't know of any other Creole people, so I had no other frame of reference. Um, so that was always a site of intrigue um, because it complicates notions of blackness or, or, you know, learning about different sub-ethnic groups beyond just African-American, like mm-hmm. a large swath of people. Um, so what was very, uh, very fascinating for me to try to unpack that.
1: Yeah. And it's, you struggle in the book with creating some sort of understanding or definition of, of what being Creole means.
2: Yes, because to this day, people cannot settle on one. They can't settle on one term of what Creole means. So it's very, very complicated and it also arouses feelings among Black people, not all of them, but certain Black people, because even for me, like when I was growing up, I just thought they were light-skinned, uppity Black people who didn't want to be called Black. They wanted to be called everything else with a dash of Black as a footnote, so to speak. So it was very interesting going down there and realizing that when we think of racial binaries or ethnic binaries in this country, it can't be a either or. Louisiana was not a part of the United States at one point, and because of that, they didn't have that strict you are either or, that strict racial binary. It wasn't until they became Americanized, and then also through the intensification of Jim Crow, that things really started to change.
1: And then even when you go to Oklahoma, that you find that the racial binary there has displaced so many different people who are both Indigenous and Black.
2: Yep. I mean, growing up, I heard many Black families, they all say they have a little Indian in them. And I'm like, whatever. And, you know, even in certain circles today, I read online where it's like Indian is often seen as, if a family member claims Indian it's because they're dealing with like intergenerational trauma whether it's because they don't want to tell their family um that their ancestor was raped by a white person or they just don't want to be seen as 100 percent black which no descendant of enslaved people is 100 percent black um but yeah like uh, you know I was I have never was taught that when the Trail of Tears happened, when Andrew Jackson forced the five civilized tribes, which, by the way, originated in the South, when he right. forced them West of the Mississippi, I didn't realize that both enslaved um, refugee and free black people went with them.
1: Yeah, so I had from, no idea. I yeah. had
2: no, that was never taught to me. And I think that's like the undercurrent of the entire book is the mm-hmm of the school system in this country. <laughs> I had no idea. And so when I realized that and when I spoke speak to people who identify as freedmen pr- basically because of their african ancestry and and th- and they're often uh, stigmatized within their own tribes, their nations, they told me before before Oklahoma even became a state, before that one drop pool thing became so calcified and their laws and their statutes—they were all one, so there wasn't a, either or. And that's hard to sort of disentangle myself on because I'm an American, and also I was—you know—I wasn't born back then. I don't know what that means. All I know is divisions. All I know is right. classifications.
1: And and the classifications really came into play with. I mean, again, in in school, I learned about the Dawes Act. Yeah. But I didn't know uh, what that meant for um for ethnic binaries
2: yeah for freedmen like if you were a freedman it meant that you are of african descent the problem with that is if you looked black you could be put on the freedman role so in, in one family one could be considered by blood a citizen by blood another could be considered a freedman now if you are a freedman that means you have no blood degree blood quantum, which many Native American activists say is racist in and of itself, having a particular fraction of blood. And so nowadays, there are freedmen, particularly in the Seminole Nation, for example, where it's like, you are allowed to vote at the time. You're allowed to vote. I've seen their cards. like You vote right. only, it says. You're allowed to vote, but you're not, al- not going to have access to perhaps educational benefits, health care, for example, clothing. All housing, right? Because you don't have the blood degree. So because of this classification that happens, you know, over 150 years ago, and because by nature of you being Black, it completely wipes out any Indigenous blood that you have. Or even still, it's like what the, some of the freedmen argue is that it didn't have to do with blood to begin with before all of this. We were all one. So why are we going mm-hmm. by blood degree?
1: And And then you even get into... This was really shocking to me, that Ancestry.com and other DNA sites are kind of full of shit.
2: They are, because for one, (laughs) it's it's so hard for me when I listen to Black people, and I mentioned this in the book, where like, yeah, I was told this, but DNA said no. Well, it's like, most Native American communities do not give their DNA to corporations, and why would they? Why would they trust the state? Why would they trust these capitalist organizations to tell them about their identity? and their tribe, or their nation. So, and I use an example woman, Darnella Davis, who knew that she was Cherokee and Creek, and grew up in a multiracial, non-segregated part of Oklahoma. And when she took the test, it said, oh, first you're 13%, then you're 25%. And it's like, well, both of her family members were a part of different Native American tribes, so what does that have to say?
1: Right, it's- it's Uh, a lab test just doesn't explain the entire story. Exactly. Right, exactly. Um, and then and and you went to a protest. Yep. Tell me about that.
2: I went I to a pro- yeah. I um I went to a protest in Seminole County, Oklahoma, which was a bit of a drive from Oklahoma City where I was staying. And, you know, I was out there with a bunch of other freedmen, um, particularly from Seminole Nation. And, um, it was an eye opening experience because I met black, you know, I just assume if you're African American, your first language is English or perhaps French. If you're, you know, right. in Louisiana and these black people were like, no, my first language was Creek, Muskogee Creek, which is what Seminole speak. Um, and. When I went out there, there were these white men in and white pickup trucks circling around with their windows down. And, you know, one of them said, You're you're lucky, because if this was hey, last year, they would have been calling us the N-word. And Like it just felt like something out of the 1960s. And, you know, that whole day was intense because they sat out right outside the Indian Bureau of Affairs. Um, the, the BIA, um, excuse me, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, the BIA. Um and just was protesting for like three or four hours. And then my liaison, Leita um, Osborne Sampson, Sampson Osborne, but she took me to the Seminole County Courthouse. She showed me around and we were actually being followed. Um, we actually had two Seminole Freedmen men who were escorting us to the courthouse. And i asked her why, because one of them was from Wichita, Kansas, which is about three hours from Seminole County and she said well he often accompanied me to meetings cuz her life has been threatened before because of the activism that she does so we had them accompany us and they did not you know leave until they saw us back on the highway so i often wonder like what would have happened that day i mean i looked out of place out there they knew i wasn't from there what would have happened that day if they were not with us when we were being followed and she was telling me stories about Ancestors disappearing we, after the land allotments they had people being murdered, found in their homes, family members are being driven off the road um, i mean it was it was just intense it was the most intense day I think out of the entire um probably the most intense day out of my entire uh research journey across the country.
1: Tell me a little more about your personal safety in all of this That was, was- the worst day but
2: yeah, I mean, to this day, I'm still processing and wondering how did I get that done? Because I'm only five feet tall. Mm-hmm. Um, Some places that I went to Oklahoma, um, the low country. I Yeah, I had liaisons in those areas, but I was driving around by myself. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mention to someone like when I was in Oklahoma, I'm actually shocked I didn't have a gun or a weapon of any kind with me. Because I was driving on these highways and at one point Oklahoma had the most, has has had or still has the most sundown towns in the entire country. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until later on that I realized when I was driving from Oklahoma city to Tulsa, um, or when I went to lunch with a black Creek man, that was in a sundown town. I had no idea. You know what I'm saying? So it's one of those things where it's like, I took a risk. And I mean, even the liaison I had in Oklahoma, before we went to the protest, she said to me, man, if you are my daughter, like, I'd be afraid. Mm. You know, I knew I had a deadline to reach. <laughs> I knew that I had to get this done. But to this day, I'm like, how did I do that with not a single weapon, without a single self-defense class? What I did was I tried to te- try to treat myself as a teenager. So I tried my best to, like, anytime I got a rental car, immediately take pictures of the license plate and to send to, like, my mother and my friends, Mm -hmm. let them know where I'm staying. And when. And I tried to make sure, and it didn't always happen because sometimes the day is very long, but I would get in before sundown. Um, And I Mm -hmm. would make sure I told someone I was in, not the hotel, in my actual room. Once I made it to my actual room, then I would message someone.
1: Room number, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did your was your family worried? Was your family? Yeah, I think my mom was
2: worried. My mom was worried. I mean, I guess she was less worried because this was the United States, and it wasn't like you know she always sees me taking solo trips overseas. She's like, "Well, how does she do that?" So, um, (laughs) yeah, but I I didn't really tell her about what happened in Oklahoma. Um, Mm -hmm. I just told her how everything was going. I was still trying to process it, but. Yeah, I think my family was like, Oh, you're here now? Because it was happening. The research was happening so fast. I would spend a week here or a week here. And so I think they were worried, but at least they knew that I was still stateside right. and I was reaching out to other black people and all. And I was trying to give them as much information as possible.
1: And then and then you went to LA for the final um part of the journey. Was- and and you talk about a lot about, I mean, it's part of the american dream right that california is just the place where all of the magic happens yeah
2: yeah and i think i wanted people to understand it, like even African-American migrants, they may have went to Oklahoma and they still wanted to go to California. They may have migrated to Chicago and they still wanted to go to California. You know what I mean? And, you know, as a millennial, like I grew up on Laguna Beach and the hills and how does it start with the full montage of the palm trees, the beach lines, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, the good looking people. And what I wanted to elucidate with that is, is the disappointment, basically, with like, your ancestors, your elders fled to this sunny town, this sunny county, and they found the same problems in a different area code. And that's what attributes the black rage with these riots and protests that happened. And so that's, I think, with the book coming out at this time, it feels really prescient because when I say in the book, like, I was hanging out with the underground rapper while I was in L.A. LA. He witnessed the 92 riots or so uprisings. And we were sitting at the center section of Florence and Normandy, which is when the 92, when the Divine King riots began. And I asked him, I said, do you think this is going to happen again? And he said, you know, I'm a paraphrase, but he said, if this country doesn't reckon with what it has done to black people, it's going to happen again. It's almost two years to the day. That's when the George Floyd protests happened. So,
1: you know, we have to deal with this cycle. It's certainly... I close the. I close your book, and then take a look at the news and think, "Oh, <laughs> you, you really right nailed it." Um, thank you so much, Morgan. This is thank so you. wonderful. Um, tell me a little bit about what you've been reading lately that you'd like to recommend.
2: So I just well, I earlier I finished Pachinko oh, uh, by yeah. Min Jin Lee. Uh, oh, my God, that was earlier in the lockdown. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I, <laughs> I ate that up. It's a big book, but I, I ate that book up. Um, I'm reading Severance by Ling Ma, even though everyone's like, no, don't read that. But I, I, I like the way she writes. Yeah. I'm going to take it slow because I can definitely <laughs> I'm going to take it slow with that. Um, other books that I, that I always recommend on shows, um, The Drift by Nam Serpell um sing unburied sing by jasmine ward um i really really love that book um temporary by hillary lichter not her last name correctly mm-hmm. um, those are the books that i would recommend oh and in the dream house by carmen <laughs>
1: maria machado i love this list <laughs> morgan thank you so much thank you thank you for listening to the maris review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.